I am the woman at the well. I come to the well in the heat of the day alone to avoid the sneers and the gossiping wagging tongues that cut into my already broken heart. I avoid the painful ignorance and the lack of loving care. Shame, it is my only covering. My men, they have all thrown me away for those that are younger and prettier than I. The shattered pieces of my life lay scattered all around me, leaving a trail of tears, desperate to be loved, shattered and scattered as my soul. And then, he, the king, the Messiah, Yeshua, he came to meet me, me, at the well. He told me all about myself. He didn't shame me. He didn't blame me. He didn't chastise me. He forgave me. He accepted me. And he healed and delivered me. He fulfills all my hopes of an abiding, undying love that will never end. Shalom, everybody. This is a modern-day Samaritan woman bringing to you healing for the nations. So just to update you, the last few weeks, I have been chit-chatting with licensed clinical social worker Leanda Weimer, who is a attachment specialist. She works with adopted children and their families. This half of the show, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about this topic, and I'm going to be sharing with you some information that I found on different websites. And then the second half of the show, I'm bringing on Dr. Robin Gould. Her and I chit-chatted on this same topic. Dr. Gould is a marriage and family therapist. She's also an attachment specialist. And so I find this topic kind of fascinating. So attachment and bonding means the same thing. Just to kind of catch you up to speed, Leanda and I talked about the bonding and attachment, brain chemistry that's released, the oxytocin, which is called the love drug, warm fuzzies, gives you a sense of belonging and acceptance and helps you to feel loved. And so the different styles Adult attachment styles are anxious, also referred to as preoccupied, avoidant, also referred to as dismissive, disorganized, also refer, referred to as fearful, avoidant, and secure. So the anxious attachment causes and symptoms, and this is taken from a really great website. It's called The Attachment Project. So anxious attachment is one of the three insecure attachment styles, and it's referred to as anxious ambivalent attachment in children. Anxious attachment develops in early childhood. Okay, so most often an anxious attachment is due to misattuned or inconsistent parenting. So it's low self-esteem, strong fear of rejection or abandonment, and clinginess in relationships are the common signs of this attachment style. Although it does require effort, individuals with such attachment issues can develop a secure attachment style over time. So, you know, there is hope. So the avoidant, it's, it's referred to as the anxious avoidant in childhood. The avoidant dismissive attachment style is one of the three insecure adult attachment styles. Let's look into that. So 
We are hungry for love and affection. Why? Because emotional intimacy has many advantages. Namely, we are able to share our thoughts and feelings openly. We receive support and reassurance. We feel heard, appreciated, valued, and consequently, we feel calm and safe. So emotional closeness can provide us with feeling of stability. We are not going through life alone. We have someone to rely on. If we feel safe and valued by others, we are also able to maintain a higher self-esteem and positive outlook on life. So the avoidant uh, attachment style in relationships, these individuals will let you be around them but will not let you in. They tend to avoid strong displays of closeness and intimacy. As soon as things get serious, dismissive, avoidant individuals are likely to close themselves off. At this point, such people might try to find a reason to end a relationship. They might be highly annoyed by their partner's behavior, habit, or even physical appearance. Consequently, they start drifting off and distance themselves from the partner. Adults with this attachment style believe that they do not need emotional intimacy in their lives. This is a direct result of their upbringing. Their caregivers showed them that people cannot be relied on. Whenever they saw emotional support in the past, it was not provided. They simply stopped seeking or expecting it from others. It's as if they have turned off the switch. So from the outside, an adult with an avoidant attachment style might look confident, strong, and together. This does not mean, however, that this person is not suffering or making those around him suffer. To the avoidant adult, emotional closeness and intimacy are often off the table, not because they will not reap benefits, but because they do not know how. Either way, not being able to build a deep, meaningful, and long-lasting relationship can be painful for people with this attachment style. It can also be heartbreaking for the ones who love them. Furthermore, having an avoidant attachment style as a parent is likely to affect your children's attachment style. If you have it, you will probably pass it on. So what do you do if you recognize a dismissive avoidant attachment style in yourself? Well, the key is to admit it and realize that the switch on emotional intimacy has to be turned on. This might be challenging and require a lot of effort. The avoidant adult needs to start paying attention to the emotional and physical sensations that come up around emotional intimacy. Self-reflection might help one make sense of and analyze existing patterns. Another essential step is exploring, understanding, and eventually expressing emotional needs. And at some point, the the avoidant adult might be able to start working on building closer relationships with people. They could follow a step-by-step approach to letting others others in and responding to emotional needs of close ones. So, you know, there's there's hope. I mean, that's that's a whole point of talking about this is to recognize that these things are are going on in our lives and our relationships and finding the answer. So, That's the problem. What's the solution? So the disorganized attached attachment, it's the most difficult type of insecure attachment. And it's often seen in people who have been physically, verbally, or sexually abused in childhood. So 
A disorganized, fearful, avoidant attachment style develops when the child's caregivers, the only source of safety, become a source of fear. In adulthood, people with this attachment style are extremely inconsistent in their behavior and have a hard time trusting others. Such individuals could also suffer from other mental health issues, such as substance abuse, depression, or borderline personality disorder. This attachment style can be changed with proper treatment although the process might be challenging. So how does uh, attachment form? So as soon as a baby's born, he or she starts bonding with their caregiver, usually parents. And for the first few years, the baby is entirely dependent on them. The caregivers, on the other hand, are responsible for the child's primary physiological care, food, shelter, etc., as well as the emotional, soothing, loving, caring. If they are sensitive towards and attuned to these needs, the child builds a secure attachment with the caregiver. And so their presence, their love equals safety. The child learns indirectly they he or she can rely on and thus trust other people. A secure and stable attachment is formed. In some cases, however, the child perceives that his or her needs are not being met and that the caregivers are not emotionally available or responsive when the child seeks her attention, affection, or support. As a result, the child is unable to form a secure bond. So the problem with insecure attachment during childhood is that it is often is that it often cannot be left behind it does not simply go away over time with growing up early attachment experiences do shape attachment styles so the way we experience our first social bonds with caregivers will determine the way we view and behave in relationships in the future so I've heard from other people that it's really helpful to understand the different attachment styles anxious attachment style for example if a child perceives the parents is unpredictable or neglecting the child might become overclingy. In other words, the child lacks attention and starts working harder to get it. Later on in life, this child, now a teenager or adult, continues to question whether they are good enough, lovable, or worthy. Such individuals can develop a low self-esteem and need constant reassurance from their partners. This is known as anxious attachment style, which is characterized by a strong fear of abandonment and rejection. So avoid an attachment style. If the child perceives that their emotional needs are rejected by the parents, the child stops expecting any response from their parents. Thus, a child learns that they should not express emotions openly or seek support because they are not going to receive it. As such, as time goes by, such children, now grown up, become self-sufficient and independent. Other people will reject their emotions anyway, so why bother trying to express them? This is the strategy behind avoidant attachment style. Disorganized attachment style, we see that there is a sort of continuity and coherence in each of the two attachment styles described above. What makes a disorganized, fearful, avoidant attachment style different is that it implies a lack of a coherence in the individual's social behavior. Most attachment specialists believe that the disorganized attachment style is the most difficult of the three and insecure attachment styles to treat because it incorporates both anxious and the avoidance styles. What causes disorganized attachment in children? It's believed to be a consequence of childhood trauma. The survival of the infant child depends on the caregivers. The child knows that subconsciously, so he or she seeks safety in the caregivers. A problem arises when the source of safety becomes a source of fear. Caregivers 
show highly contrasting behavior, which is inconsistent and unpredictable, the child can start fearing his or her own safety. The child does not know what to expect, nor does a child know when the caregiver will meet their needs if at all. Another reason for fear is having or witnessing a traumatizing experience that involves the attachment figure. For instance, the caregiver abuses a child verbally, physically, or sexually, or the child witnesses the caregiver abuse someone else. Either way, the child no longer trusts the caregiver. The child realizes that they cannot rely on caregivers to meet their physical or emotional needs. The caregivers, who should be acting as a source of safety, are not only unreliable, but they are also causing fear. Children with disorganized attachment style are not able to truly adapt to the caregiver's behavior as they know what comes next what because they never know what's coming next such children lack coherence in their own behavior towards the caregivers they might seek closeness but at the same time reject the caregiver's proximity distance themselves due to fear so if you want more information there's a lot more information on that website the attachment project so I just want to touch base before we close um, I mentioned Rat Park in the last show and that is an amazing research that they did and uh, I just suggest that you look into Rat Park that research and because of lack of time I'm not going to go into the details but I also wanted to mention a British journalist Johan Hari he says that uh, the opposite of addiction is connection and he has a really great talk on TED TED talks if you want to check that out it's really good and uh, so anyways a lot of the recent research is really looking at attachment styles and it being the bedrock of addiction so it's contrary to what most folks believe about substance abuse in general people think that the pleasurable effects of alcohol cocaine heroin and like are the primary drivers of addiction and why not we know for certain that once ingested these substances trigger the release of dopamine and other several you know several other pleasure related neurochemicals into the brain in other words potentially addictive substances make us feel good and you know we human beings, we like to feel good, so we go back to more, back for more. Hence, the human propensity for addiction. So it seems at first glance. Boistering this belief is the fact that most of the early research and theories on the root causes of addiction are centered on the brain's pleasure response, the aforementioned dopamine rush, but is actually looking more into connection so nevertheless this long-held belief is incorrect if it wasn't then everybody who ever took a sip of alcohol would become a raging drunk and everyone who ever ingested an opiate even a prescription opiate would end up in a back alley shooting heroin but that isn't even close to what actually happens in reality only about 10 percent of the people who try a potentially addictive substance eventually become addicted the rest of the people either walk away from the substance completely or continue to enjoy it casually and recreationally so once again the research that they did called rat park 
really shows an interesting, interesting thing. Uh, they put rats in empty cages alone with two water bottles to choose from. One with pure water, the other um, was heroin infused. Those experiments showed that as time passed, these rats would uniformly get hooked on and eventually overdose from heroin. So the researchers unsurprisingly concluded that the potential of extreme pleasure in itself is addictive. Case closed, right? Not for Alexander, who is uh, Canadian psychologist Bruce Alexander. He looked at this study and uh, he was bothered by the fact that the cages in which the rats were isolated were small with no potential for stimulation beyond the heroin. So Alexander thought, of course they got high. What else were they supposed to do? In response to this perceived shortcoming, Alexander created what we call Rat Park, a cage approximately 200 times larger than the typical isolation cage with hamster wheels and multicolored balls to play with, plenty of tasty food to eat, and spaces for mating and raising litters. And he put not one rat, but 20 rats of both genders into the cage. Then and only then, the old experiments, offering one bottle of pure water and one bottle of heroin water. And guess what? The rats ignored the heroin. They were much more interested in typical communal rat activities, such as playing, fighting, eating, and mating. Essentially, with a little bit of social stimulation and connection, addiction disappeared. Heck, even rats who'd previously been isolated and sucking on the heroin water left it alone once they were introduced to Rat Park. Very interesting study, right? So one of the reasons that rats are routinely used in psychological experiments is that they are social creatures in many of the same ways that humans are social creatures. They need stimulation, company, play, drama, sex, and interaction to stay happy. Humans, however, add an extra layer to this equation. We need to be able to trust and to emotionally attach. This need for trust this human need for trust and attachment was literally studied and developed as a cycle construct in the 1950s when John Bowlby tracked the reactions of small children when they were separated from their parents. In a nutshell, he found that infants, toddlers, and young children have an extensive need for safe and reliable caregivers. If children have that, they tend to be happy in childhood and well-adjusted, emotionally healthy later in life. If children don't have that, it's a very different story. So we're right back to Bulby's work, which Leanda unpacked for us, um, and uh, that's you know, that's the attachment theory. So another piece of information that I wanted to put out uh, to you is about AA. And, uh, you know, this particular article that I found in Psychology Today, the article goes on to saying, interestingly enough, both AA and the addiction treatment community as a whole realized 
this fact long before Alexander's Rat Park experiment. In truth, the often parallel work of 12-step recovery programs and formalized addiction treatment programs after the initial experience of detox involves connecting the addict to other people. And not just any people either. We're talking about safe, support, reliable, empathetic people. That's why 12-step meetings work, people. It's because it's one addict helping another. Much of the time, these safe and supportive people are other addicts in recovery who know exactly what it feels like to be addicted and to embark on the lengthy process of healing. However, this newfound sense of connection doesn't always have to be with other addicts. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, giving them a chance. If, for instance, the addicted was a computer programmer prior to his or her downfall, the government will find a company that needs a computer programmer and offer to pay half of the addict's salary for the first year of employment if the company will give that person a shot. This is in Portugal, by the way. Additionally, the government funds traditional treatment opportunities and various other forms other forms of social support. In short, Portugal tries to reintegrate addicts into the human rat park in a way that helps them learn to trust and to connect. So it's all about learning how to trust again and connecting with other people. And so um, it's creating safe spaces for people to come and to address their woundedness. And it's only with other safe people that this work can, can be successful. That's why I am a proponent of 12-step groups. And I know a lot of people, maybe you are one of them, that does not feel safe in congregations because people just are not engaging in proper therapy. They're not engaging in any type of recovery work. And, um, you know, they're sitting. I used to have a mentor. She would say, yeah, they're just sitting in their dirty diapers. They like to sit in their dirty diapers. You know, maybe you are like me and how I used to be. I knew that there was something wrong. I knew there was something wrong. <coughs> I didn't know. I didn't know how to get clean. I didn't know how to live without drugs or alcohol. I didn't know how to live life. I was so, so filled with shame. So filled with shame. And it was only through the Father intervening, only through the Father that he led and guided me to, to people that could help me. And most of the help that I found was in the rooms of the 12-step programs, AA, NA, Al-Anon, and adult children, alcoholics, and families. So, anyways, brothers and sisters, we're out of time for this half of the show. I hope that 
you were able to glean something out of this message. I know I was all out of, all over the place, kind of out of sorts of late, but anyways, with that, I'm going to say shalom. Stay tuned for the second half with Dr. Robin Gould. Shalom. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is the second half of Healing for the Nations with a modern-day Samaritan woman. So on this half of the show, I have a guest, Dr. Robin Gould. So welcome. Having me. I'm so grateful. I always feel like whenever we get together and talk, I feel like I'm in the room with you. (laughs) I know. We really have some great chats. So I've asked you to come on because... The last few weeks I've been chit-chatting with another therapist and her expertise is attachment. Also, she works with adopted children and their families. So I know you and I have done shows before. We've discussed the topic of divorce and we have also talked about this topic of attachment. Before we go any further, would you please share with the audience who you are and what you do, some of the books that you've written and how they can reach you? Sure, I sure will. So my website is newcovenantpath.com and uh, I'm an author of some Becky books, which are B-E-K-Y, Building and Encouraging the Kingdom of Yeshua. And I've written three books on the dietary laws from an attachment perspective and one book that's called Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. And then I've also written a children's book called The Forgiveness and I have co-written a book called Safe Conversations, a 40-day journey with Kenneth Sanderfer. And it's, an, it's a, a devotional based on attachment principles. So couples would each buy one and go through that for 40 days. So that's kind of what I do. And then I've been a, ther- a marriage and family therapist for 20 years. And I'm shifting into working in the field of health and, and motivation and that sort of thing. Um, but I love attachment. I can talk about it all day, every day. And my uh, my main thrust at this point is helping people develop a healthy, uh, a healthy, bonded, attached understanding, positive concept of self and other, and of course, of God. Well, wow, that's a mouthful. So I think what I'm going to have you do is unpack what all that means. So I'm going to hand the mic over to you and just have you help us to understand what all that is. Okay, sure. I'll be happy to. So when it comes to attachment, basically what we have is what they would call attachment styles. Um, We have anxious, we have avoidant, and then we have anxious avoidant. So anxious would be very clingy and terrified of abandonment, withdrawn, you know, avoidant would be very withdrawn, uh, very uh, hard to connect with, a person that doesn't let their guard down. And then anxious avoidant would be what we call a disorganized attachment where the person vacillates between the two. which is actually what they would call nowadays borderline personality disorder. And the way the reason they call it borderline is that it's, it's a way a person is always bringing you to the borderline and then pulling you back. It, often they're testing you to test the, the relationship all the time. And that's a really draining experience for the person that struggles with that and their, whoever is on the receiving end of that. So. Um, so that's basically the idea of attachment, if you want to nutshell it, is just having a, an understanding of your own worth, the worth of others, feeling bonded and connected and not feeling alone. And so the principles of attachment, the, the, the elements of attachment are that both people in the relationship derive benefit from the relationship. It's not, you know, a benevolent thing. It's I get something out of it. You get something out of it. 
Um, and there, and that there's consistency, there's healthy boundaries, and that there's safety. You're able to grow and explore and expand, and, and you're allowed to ask questions about the relationship. You're allowed to get clarity. Um, it's, you hear a lot of people say, I just don't speak up because I don't want to rock the boat. That tells me they have an insecure attachment or some sort of something that they don't feel safe enough to say, you know, I'm feeling scared in this way, or I'm not sure I need clarity in our relationship about what, what does this mean when you do this? Um, and so that those are all things in systems therapy, when I would do that, that we would, those are always the first things that we start to address. Wow, awesome. So I'm thinking about um, feeling safe and secure in a marriage, because that's, that's what I'm hearing you say. And I hear a lot of people, a lot of women, who do not feel safe enough to ask those questions. Um, there's a lot of chaos in relationships. Could you please help us to understand what is the bedrock for like domestic abuse or addictions or um, these unsafe marriages? Oh, absolutely. I would love to. Um, and that's pretty much been the lion's share of my career is working on that. Um, and so basically anytime there is a level of unhealthy control, that would be um, that, that would be a marital problem that would probably stem from trauma. Um, a lot of people that have sustained trauma in their childhood, they had a parent that wasn't emotionally available, not present, their needs were not met. And it, we call that, uh, what the, you would sustain what we call an attachment wound. And that shows up in our relationships when we're older. And that can show up as addiction because you know it's very difficult to sit with feelings that hurt um, and we will do almost anything to not feel that because humans are humans and they don't like that, right? So people find all different sorts of ways to try to render themselves first aid so that they can go on and, and have relationships without all of that. Um, and then we and then we have in marriages places, uh, you know, marriages where people are too confrontive and too aggressive and too harsh where we have to say, Here, here's a more effective way to communicate what you're needing and wanting. Um, and so it just depends. Some people are from gregarious families where everybody talked loudly and some people, they had a very calm, they don't, you know, different people have different attachment styles even above and beyond the theory, but just in the way people interact day to day. And we have to have, we have to develop the ability to be safe enough, the ability to be in relationships that where we feel safe to say, you know, when you use your hands a lot, I'm not used to that. It makes me feel like you're mad at me. And that person says, oh, no, we're, you know, Italian family. We love to use our hands all the time. And, but thank you for telling me that. I can be sensitive to that. And, and but I just want to let you know that might not always be on the front of my mind. And it doesn't mean anything toward you aggressive. So even those little things are show a healthy, safe relationship where both people have rights to express their experience of the relationship. So does cult so does culture play a part in all of this? Well there's gender roles where, you know, in some religious systems, you know, women are taught very much not to ask questions. Um, and that can be very difficult. Women are to be passive and not you know, it's interesting because it says if a man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, 
and we're full, you know, and, and it's our petitions that go to heaven in, in, in Yeshua, right? Wouldn't the husband need to know what's going on with the wife? What's going on with the bride? Um, how can he love her properly without her opening up about her experience? Um, because love is, part of love is protecting each other and hearing each other and seeing each other for what the other is, not for what we wish they were, right? What's the experience that you're having? So I think in, in religious systems and in culture in general, the gender roles that, and, and it can go the other way too, because sometimes it can go too far where um, I've seen women really abuse power that that they are, you know, and that you have a very passive husband, he doesn't dare to rock the boat. Um, so anyway, those are all sort of hallmark, like a, a red flag to me, that there's lack of safety in the relationship and culture can definitely play a part of that. I think culture can also be part of the antidote as well, because you are starting to get more people questioning culture and saying, you know, that's just sort of culture, not so much me. And that's really powerful when people are able to separate themselves from culture. That's interesting. Because we're not of the world, but we are in the world, right? So we have to learn how to cope with the world. But, um, but really our worthiness and our is it comes from God Almighty Himself. Just the fact that He made us, he, you know, he, I would say He we're, we're made of dirt, filled with light, and He we are the gift He made to give Himself. So just right there, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, you should love yourself, right? And I think people forget the whole self part. They think that that's unholy or something. Um, and the first thing we have to do is to love ourselves because the love for our neighbor comes out of that. And that's how that sentence is even is even written. Exactly. So as I'm as I'm listening to you talk, um, one of the words that just popped up in my mind is disassociation. A lot of people, um, sometimes unbeknownst to them, are actually disassociated from themselves, and so I think one of the pieces in our journey maybe is to become reconnected with ourselves absolutely Lorraine. Yeah. that's so so insightful that you just shared that because there are drugs from the outside and our brain is chemicals and there is the chemicals our brain generates on the inside um, you can be an addict and not even ever touch a substance like yes. I was saying you can check your phone compulsively to see if someone's reaching out to you or not um, and, and that's not an addiction well it's very much an addiction and so yeah that's an interesting uh, piece piece of information to, to share along with people to, to help um, because addiction is a piece of attachment a huge piece it's when people feel unsafe in the world and let's say the way I want to say, let's say, let's say you're talking about associating. So that would be where the person sort of checks out. They remove themselves from the stimuli that's scary. Um, so that can be an avoidant, uh, withdrawn, go into fantasy, um, watch TV to escape, not just to be entertained. Um, that that can be a, that's a real thing where people need they need to separate from the stimuli. Um, and so you get a lot of that. You, and, I, and I'll be able to tell in session when a person starts doing that. And so what we do is we get present again. We, we get reminded that we're in a safe place with safe parameters in a moderated session. 
I have to establish trust with me first that I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to um, push them outside of their comfort zone much because at the outside of our comfort zone that we do move the needle, but at the same time, there's pain and then there's pain, right? There's This is a difficult thing to touch and I'm here, you, I'm here with you while we carry this yoke together and then we close the session, right? But then there's, you start seeing the person dissociate and, and kind of check out. It's because the environment was not safe enough for them. And that would be my responsibility to correct that and to stop the line of questioning or the, the discussion and reestablish safety. So attachment is minute by minute sometimes. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, creating safe spaces for people to come and to be able to do the hard work that needs to be done. And, you know, our world feels more and more unsafe and addiction has skyrocketed and, you know, this uh, whole COVID thing has really uh, escalated the domestic abuse and the addictions. Um Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, it's become a joking part of culture. Ever since COVID, I'm drinking all the time or whatever. It's memes that are funny. It's become woven into the fabric of our culture. Um, and that's interesting, right? It's interesting to me how we are justifying all of this and at the same time judging all of this. It's so polarizing. So, the father's on the move. The enemy is absolutely doing his utmost to do as much destruction as he can. And parallel is that the father is um, desiring his people to trust him enough to seek healing, to seek people like yourself um, for therapy to address these these wounds that are preventing them from being all that he created them to be as he knit them together in their mother's womb with the gifts and the talents. And um, so it seems as if the father is networking together the healers and calling the healers forward and um, there's a great mighty work that needs to be done within the body of the Messiah within his bride and you know it just seems like we have this window of time to address these these deep wounds that are really hindering us from connecting with with him connecting with ourselves connecting with one another um, I think about the um, some of the congregations come to my mind where there is not a safe it's not a safe environment for women it's not a safe environment for children um, so how do we create safety 
Well, that's a very good point. And I think the biggest enemy that we really have is the flaws in our belief system about our worthiness, the way the Father made us. Because if He made us, we are worthy, period, just because He is. I mean, just because we come off as worthy doesn't mean it's wrong, right? Because we are worthy. Um, and so that fraudulent belief system where we don't know our identity as children of God made in his image, that is the biggest enemy of all. Because then we don't understand how much he loves us and that he's always with us. We don't understand that other people are, are valuable and not to be uh, shamed or abused and also to love ourselves. That we are commanded that for a very good reason. It is vital that we love ourselves. And so that's not a suggestion. That was what the whole Torah hung on. Would you love God first? And you know that's your safety zone of absolute safety. And you become safe. You know, perfect love casts out all fear or the fear of not being enough, the fear of not being worthy, right? So when we, so, so to be able to love our neighbor as ourselves, because he, he, we love him because he first loved us. He did it first. He loved us. He didn't hate the world so much he gave the Messiah he, so that he could look on his disgusting creation. He loved us so much. Love never departed from the picture. And so the, the, big, the big enemy here is us not knowing that, not us not believing that, us being told that they were not enough and that they have to earn their worth. And so that's a really big deal and creating safety in, 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 our, in our communities and our religious communities is first of all, to come from a place of self-love and understanding ourselves and understanding, you know what, it's because I'm a controlling person because I don't love myself the way I'm supposed to because I think I have to earn my worth by keeping things in control. These are all, all these false selves are about, are about we don't know what, that we're worthy already. Um, and that is, the, to me, that's the biggest enemy. And that, that's also the biggest answer, is know who you are. And when you know who you are and the Father made you and that you do deserve his love, and never those these prayers I hear people, Father, we don't deserve your love, but thank you for it. But that's not true. Because if he's a just God and he loves you, he wouldn't love you unjustly. It's justice that he loves you. He made you and he loves you. So these are all things that create safety environments because the truth is what's safe and the truth is love the lord your god with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself when you walk in that there is nothing no enemy right oh, i love that i love that just recognizing the beauty within you and the beauty that's in other people because we all have beauty we all have gifts and talents we all have the wonderment of being his creation so yes. yeah Amen. so anyways we're out of time could you once again remind people how they can find you yes they can find me at newcovenantpath.com all right well thank you so much i really appreciate you coming on and sharing some wisdom with us well thank you for having me i look forward to doing this again sometime well have a wonderful time in israel i'm so jealous all right. Well, thank you. I will have a great time, and I will tell you all about it. All right. Shalom. Okay. Shalom. Thanks. Bye-bye.
Space to shine. 